Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 34. Here's a brief overview of some of what we'll be reading about in Scripture today here in the New Testament. The Passover commemorated Israel's escape from Egypt when the blood of a lamb painted on their door frames had saved their firstborn sons from death. This event foreshadowed Jesus' work on the cross. As the spotless Lamb of God, His blood would be spilled in order to save His people from the penalty of death brought by sin. Luke mentions two cups of wine, while Matthew and Mark mention only one. In the traditional Passover meal, wine is served four times. Christ spoke the words about His body and His blood when He offered the fourth and last cup. Now Jesus asked the disciples to eat the broken bread to remember Him. He wanted them to remember His sacrifice, the basis for forgiveness of sins, and also His friendship, which they could continue to enjoy through the work of the Holy Spirit. Although the exact meaning of communion has been strongly debated throughout church history, Christians still take bread and wine in order to remember their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not neglect participating in the Lord's Supper, Let it remind you of what Christ did for you. Now, in Old Testament times, God agreed to forgive people's sins if they would bring animals for the priests to sacrifice. When this sacrificial system was inaugurated, the covenant between God and His people was sealed with the blood of animals. But animal blood did not in itself remove sin, because only God can forgive sin. And animal sacrifices had to be repeated day after day, year after year. Well, Jesus instituted a new covenant, a new agreement between God and His people. Under this new covenant, Jesus would die in the place of sinners. Unlike the blood of animals, His blood, because He is God, would remove the sins of all who put their faith in Him. Jesus' sacrifice would never have to be repeated. It would be good for all eternity. And now, with that backdrop, let's begin our narrative today here in the New Testament. April 24th, the New Testament, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 34. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples begin to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Then they begin to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, In this world... 
the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you, and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Psalm 92, verse 1, through chapter 93, verse 5. Here's a brief commentary on the psalm we're reading today. During the Thanksgiving holiday, we focus on our blessings and express our gratitude to God for them. But thanks should be on our lips every day. We can never say thank you enough to parents, friends, leaders, and especially to God. When Thanksgiving becomes an integral part of your life, you'll find that your attitude toward life will change. You'll become more positive, more gracious, loving, and humble. Palm trees are known for their long life. They're mentioned in the psalm here today. To flourish like palm trees means to stand tall and to live long. The cedars of Lebanon grew to 120 feet in height and up to 30 feet in circumference. Thus, they were solid, strong, and immovable. The writer here saw believers as upright, strong, and unmoved by the winds of circumstance. Those who place their faith firmly in God can have this strength and vitality. Honoring God is not restricted to young people who seem to have unlimited strength and energy. Even in old age, devout believers can produce spiritual fruit. There are many faithful older people who continue to have a fresh outlook and can teach us from a lifetime of experience of serving God. Seek out an elderly friend or relative who can tell you about his or her experiences with the Lord and challenge you to new heights of spiritual growth. Psalm 92, verse 1, through chapter 93, verse 5. A psalm, a song to be sung on the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening. Accompanied by the ten-stringed harp and the melody of the lyre, you thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. O oh Lord, what great works you do, and how deep are your thoughts. Only a simpleton would not know, and only a fool would not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like weeds, and evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, O oh Lord, will be exalted forever. Your enemies, Lord, will surely perish. All evildoers will be scattered. But you have made me as strong as a wild ox. You have anointed me with the finest oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the defeat of my wicked opponents. 
But the godly will flourish like palm trees, and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon, for they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. They will declare, The Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in Him. The Lord is King. He is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Your throne, O Lord, has stood from time immemorial. You yourself are from the everlasting past. The floods have risen up, O Lord. The floods have roared like thunder. The floods have lifted their pounding waves. But mightier than the violent raging of the seas, mightier than the breakers on the shore, the Lord above is mightier than these. Your royal laws cannot be changed. Your reign, O Lord, is holy forever and ever. Proverbs chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. A wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Those who follow the right path fear the Lord. Those who take the wrong path despise Him. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesechanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio and have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us on Easter. Um, this is a historical event the church has been celebrating since it began a couple thousand years ago. And really the, the reality that we're celebrating today is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. And so this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're remembering today. And so it's not necessarily bunnies or candy or pastel colors. Those things are cool. But what the heart, the heart behind today, the reality behind today, the history-altering fact that we're looking at, that we're celebrating is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from death. And so everything hinges on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, um, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, he said this. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. And so the resurrection is vitally important. And it's unique to Christianity. It's unique to Jesus. And so we've been looking at Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament for the past couple months. And we're going to continue to, to look at Acts. And we're actually going to base this sermon off of a segment of the Apostle Peter's first sermon that he ever gave in Acts chapter 2. Uh, verses 23 and 24. And so again, this is a segment from Peter's first sermon that he ever gave. And so it's kind of important to think about what does he highlight? What does he say about the gospel of Jesus? What does he emphasize? And so you can follow along with me or you can look in your Bible. But verse 23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 24 says, God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so on Friday, this past Friday, what's historically called Good Friday, we, we remember Jesus' torturous sacrifice upon the cross where he died. And today, we acknowledge, we remember, and we celebrate his resurrection from death to life. And hopefully today, hopefully today we walk away understanding, maybe answering a couple questions a little bit better. And so those questions are, why did he have to die? And then secondly, why is Jesus' resurrection so vitally important to our faith? So why did he have to die, and why is his resurrection so vitally important? And we're going to break these two verses up into four parts. And so the first section is really the first half of verse 23, which just says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so think about what Peter's saying here. What happened to Jesus didn't take God for surprise. It wasn't unbeknownst to Jesus or to the Father God. So think about what's being said. The text says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what Peter's saying is this was known from the beginning. It was planned from a previous point in what we call time. It didn't shock God. God wasn't like, you know what, I didn't see this one coming. This is unprecedented. I, don't, I didn't understand that this is what was going to take place. That's not what's happening. But what does this mean then? What does this mean? Why would God plan for His Son to be delivered up? To be beaten, to be mocked, like we examined in detail on Friday. And friends, I think we got to keep ourselves from prettying this up too much. We can't make general statements about this because think about the horror of what it would be like to know that your only beloved son was going to be delivered up to an unholy people and punished unjustly. You wouldn't plan for that. This wouldn't be a part of your determined outcome for your son's life. No. would never be. So why did Jesus willingly die? Why was this part of the Father's plan and purpose? Because what we know is, and what we have to understand is that for the Father, this was the height of painful experience. This is the epitome of loss. How can a sovereign, holy, and just God plan for such a thing? How can God, if He's truly in control, determine to work in such a way? Surely there's another way. This makes no sense. This is cosmic child abuse, as some have said. There's got to be another way. Well, when we, you and I, representing mankind, when we decided not to follow God, when we decided to go our own way, you know, back in the beginning, in Genesis, even in in what we experience now and the decisions that we make, it separated us from God. It separated God and man. And this separation was cosmic. It, it affected everything. And so man is now out of sync, out of order, if you will. Something's broken that can't be undone. And so a just God, a good God, created things in order, and man, us, we've broken that order. 
We determine to rebel against God, and this has affected everything. So what does that look like? Well, the, the physical world is in shambles. What does that look like? Well, war and greed and sex trafficking and murder and substance abuse. Our emotional and psychological states are in shambles, and that, takes, and that looks like depression and anxiety and narcissism and fear and, and doubt and envy. But most importantly and most notably, the spiritual world is in shambles, meaning we are totally depraved and without God's intervention, we would never purely seek God for God's sake. We wouldn't. We don't. We're a broken people. We were created by God to be in relationship with Him. Genesis talks about us being called to steward, to manage His creation, but we've broken that perfect union by determining to be our own God, our own Lord, our own Savior, make our own way. And this evil pursuit of personal autonomy, right? It's, it's produced all the pain, all the suffering, all the toil, all the violence that we see around us. Relational toil, infighting, jealousy and selfishness. And we see this stuff everywhere, right? And so would it be just for God to just overlook injustice? Would it be righteous or acceptable for God, for a holy God, for a good God, to ignore unrighteousness, to ignore wrongdoing? Think about it. How just would it be for a judge to sentence a murderer to go free with no reason or with no recourse? Something inside, even the darkest of us, Something inside each of us knows that there's such a thing as justice, that there are things that are right and there are things that make us upset. There are things that are wrong, whether we can admit it or not. So something must be done for this wrongdoing or for what the Bible calls sin. And in reality, what what we need to hear, what I need to hear, what all of us need to hear is that it would have been just for God to make his creatures pay the penalty for their wrongdoing. It would have been just. It would have been what we deserved. You and I. And the Bible teaches that what? The wages of sin is death in Romans 8. Or Romans 3, sorry. And so that's what the Bible teaches that we've deserved. So as a result of rebellion against God, we deserve death. We deserve that. We don't like to hear that because it goes against our high views of us. But if we're honest, I think we realize that there's something wrong with the world and there's something fundamentally wrong with us. It would have been just for God to sentence us to death. And I think we have to, before we ever get onto the good news, we have to realize that. We have to let that kind of sink in because sometimes we can say, God, give me what I'm owed. Give me what I'm owed. Okay, well, you're owed death. I'm owed death and separation from God. And for some, maybe separation from God sounds kind of nice because maybe you're angry at God or something. But God made all that exists. And so without God, logically, there is no goodness. So your perception of happiness, your perception of love and goodness, of joy, of peace, it comes from and it can only be found in God because He is Creator. Because He is Creator. Which means apart from Him, you cannot experience what you most want. Separation from God is death. This is what you are due. This is what I am due. This is what we're all due. 
somehow, for some reason, God had planned this course of action. He wasn't shocked by what had happened. And so our first point, the first, the first part of verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then how does he finish the verse? He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter doesn't quite give us the good news yet, does he? And by the way, he says, you killed and you are responsible for crucifying Jesus. You are lawless people. Now, in this instance, Peter is specifically speaking to the religious leaders in this context. But it's relevant to say that we have all, in our personal participation in sinful rebellion, that we've participated in the killing of Jesus. How? Well, we've broken God's law. If you look back to Exodus and and the Mosaic law, we haven't loved God. We've built up idols in our lives. We've taken His name in vain. We've lived recklessly, busy lives, not adhering to Sabbath and rest. We've failed to honor father and mother. Some have murdered. Some have committed adultery. We've stolen. We've bared false witness. We've gossiped. We've slandered. We've all coveted other people's stuff, right? We're a mess. We're a mess. We we live lives pretending to be autonomous and self-sufficient. What that looks like is I can figure out my own life. I'll get mine. I can figure this out on my own. I can acquire happiness through some sort of means other than God. We've participated in killing God because of our sins, because of these things. So, in a sense, Peter's kind of taking the religious leaders, he's taking us to the brink of despair. Peter's walking us to the edge of the cliff. He's trying to break down our deep self-pride, our, our, the illusion of our own personal goodness and grandeur. He's saying, you kill God. You're lawless. You haven't loved God. You've loved yourselves. You've loved yourselves. Even your motives for doing good things are selfish. And now listen to the prophet Isaiah. And this is 700 years prior to Jesus coming. In chapter 53, 12, Isaiah says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So what's Isaiah saying? What's Isaiah saying? Isaiah is is foreshadowing the Messiah, or the the awaited one, right? That the Old Testament was prophesying, was foreshadowing, was, was telling this Messiah will come. And so he's foreshadowing Jesus 700 years prior to his coming in in the Gospels. Why did Jesus have to die for sin? Well, Isaiah's kind of speaking into that. Remember, God can't, we, we just unpacked a little bit, God can't turn a blind eye to our wrongdoing. He can't let us off the hook without some penalty. If this was the case, He wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be just. If this was the case, then we couldn't say that God's really good. Because no good judge would do that. Essentially, Jesus takes the place of the sinner. Jesus takes our place. He switches with us. He takes what we deserve. And and we've established, and Paul just underlines it and highlights it all day long in Romans, that he says, hey, you deserve your wages. What you've earned is death. We are owed death. And Jesus takes death from us and gives us what he deserves. 
which is perfect communion with the Father God. Perfect community, perfect relationship with God. See, in verse 12 there, in in Isaiah 53, it said, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus gives us his spoils, what he deserved, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's saying Jesus was given what we deserved as rebellious people. What mankind deserves as rebellious people, he bore the weight of sin on himself. He was scourged, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was abandoned, he was bruised, he was mocked, he was shunned, he was alone, and he was accused. Why? So that we could be with God. So that we could be with God. And see, what I love about this is this gives us a glimpse into God's character, who God is. Someone say, This isn't fair, this isn't right. Well, Jesus' sacrifice definitely isn't fair. But this shows God's character. This shows that God is a merciful, gracious, and loving God, so much so that he humbles himself before his creatures. He humbles himself before us sinners. And then thirdly, beginning of verse verse 24, says God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. God raised him up. How could Peter say such a thing? He's pointing to the resurrection. He's pointing to to the resurrection of Jesus. And what we have to know is that the Bible, it's interesting because we saw a different kind of Peter in Luke 22. Peter was previously scared to death because in Luke 22, Jesus was taken away and there was like a, a servant girl that walked up to Peter and he said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he denied him. He said, no way, I'm not, no. Now, he's before the religious leaders. They're all threatening his life. They're all questioning what he's saying about Jesus Christ. And he tells them that Jesus has been raised, that he's resurrected. He's telling them, hey, by the way, you killed this Jesus. What happened to Peter? What changed in Peter? Well, Peter witnessed the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus changed his outlook. It changed his faith and his belief in God. Andrew Murray says something to the effect of, a dead Christ I must do everything for, but a living Christ does everything for me. And Christ, what he's saying is that Christ accomplishes for you, for me, all for all those who would put their faith and hope in his resurrection, that that produces for us life and hope. See, I can even remember when I was searching, personally, when I was doubting, when I was longing to know some form of truth. And I just graduated high school, and I'd had some confusing experiences at church and made some bad choices. I was really doubting. Honestly, I was really doubting whether or not my faith was real. And I remember going to public university and hearing all the postmodern ideas of ethics and the subversive attacks on truth and God and religion. And I found a lot of the arguments and the ideas, I found them very intriguing, but oftentimes shallow. And so I started reading a lot. I started pursuing truth. And by God's grace, I came across a lot of thoughtful Christian writers who began answering my questions and speaking boldly and clearly about the good news of Jesus. 
And I came to agree with the late great apologist Francis Schaeffer who said, Christianity is the greatest intellectual system the mind of man has ever touched. And many, many folks, maybe even some of you might scoff at that quote. But if you really understand Christianity, I mean, if you really go to its depths, if you, you will find that it answers the biggest questions better than any other system of thought ever has. And then some. The story is beautiful. And even better than that, it's historical. It's not fiction. It actually happened. If you want to hear some of the proofs, Pastor Nick at Short North, you can listen online. The sermon that he gave today, he actually went through nine proofs of why the resurrection is actually historically a historical event. I decided not to do that. But if you're really interested in that, there's great historical facts to back up a literal resurrection. A literal resurrection. Christ accomplishes this for us. And the cool thing is, is that God wasn't scared of my doubt. Through His grace, He revealed Himself to me with patience and gentleness. I was an arrogant fool, and God showed me His grace. And in many ways, I still am a mess. Just like Danny, just like you. But God's pursuing you. Not theoretically, but quite literally. Quite literally. And he can do this because of the resurrection of his son Jesus. Tim Keller says this. He says, The ultimate power in the universe is death. Nobody gets out from under death. But this one did. Why? This was not just a prophet. This was the Son of God. He declared him the Son of God with power when he rose from the dead. Here's the other thing. The gospel not only says our founder is not just one who points to God, but is God himself. The gospel also says that you're not saved by your good works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You're saved because Jesus Christ came and he satisfied all the requirements of the law. He satisfied the justice of the law. See, the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection, it changed Peter. The historical reality of Jesus' resurrection changed and is changing me. And Peter believes. He doesn't believe merely just intellectually in his head. He believes Jesus with his whole person. So much so that he was willing to sacrifice much. Peter's story, if you know anything about Peter, is he ultimately died for this belief. Because he witnessed the resurrected Christ. And Peter's inviting us to participate in Jesus' resurrected life. We as a church and the church for 2,000 years have believed in a historical resurrection. Jesus was killed on Friday, but he resurrected on Sunday. And we see that 24, Peter says, God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death. Uh, Loosing the pangs of death. The Faith Life Study Bible says regarding that. In raising Jesus, God has effectively broken death's power over all people. This victory produces new life that cannot be vanquished by death. Meaning, we could have never relinquished the sin penalties that we've accumulated apart from Jesus taking on our debts, taking on our wounds, and taking on all of our fallen tendencies. Jesus accomplished all that was needed for us to know God. Our salvation is through Christ alone, just as Keller said. We don't bring anything of merit to the table. 
We don't save ourselves. He did all of it. He accomplished all of it. And He's inviting us to follow Him, to put our faith in Him, to trust in Him, to live our lives in light of who He is and what He modeled. Last part of the text. Last thing He says is because it was not possible for him to be held by it so the whole text one last time is that this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it meaning jesus could not be defeated by death jesus accomplished victory over sin god had a purpose in christ's suffering Jesus willingly took our penalty upon the cross. This wasn't forced upon Him. He willingly gave of Himself so that we could have the gift of life, so that we could have the gift of a relationship with God for those that would put their trust and their faith in Him. This isn't just news. This is good news. This is an invitation into resurrection life with Jesus. This is only available because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And His perfect life. He didn't raise from the dead. If He didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So friends, listen, I invite you to follow Christ. Maybe you've, you have never been a Christian, you never put your faith in God. I, I invite you to follow Him. I invite you to put your faith in Him. Or to be reminded of this reality and this truth. Peter's message is gospel. It's essentially good news. He's telling the religious leaders and us, here's what happened. God planned that Jesus would be delivered up to lawless sinners. Because of our rebellion and sin, which has put us in opposition and led to our demise, we killed Jesus and God resurrected and making a way for you and I to be in relationship with God again. You are invited into that relationship. doesn't matter how you came in here. It doesn't matter what your story is. We've all played part in the demise of Christ. And he gave up himself willingly so that we could know God. And the gospel, the thing about the gospel is it demands a response. We either choose not to follow God and remain in our sin, or we repent and we turn from ourselves and we turn to God. And so I invite you to ask God for forgiveness, to invite God to change you to be more like Christ. Because in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have life. In Christ, there's true peace. There's true joy. That's not fleeting. That doesn't change. That's not determined on our circumstances. One of the best, and I'm almost done. I'll just finish with this. One of the best known preachers of the 18th century, George Whitfield, he said in a sermon, this, this is the way. Walk in it. Believe and you shall live in Christ. In Christ in you. You shall be one with Christ, and Christ one with you. But without this, your outward goodness and professions will avail you nothing. But then, by this faith, we are not to understand a dead speculative faith, a faith in the head, but a living principle wrought in the heart by the powerful operations of the Holy Ghost. A faith that will enable us to overcome the world and forsake all the affection for Jesus Christ. For thus speaks our blessed Master. Unless a man forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. I encourage you to participate in Jesus' resurrection life. I encourage you to right now invite God to change you because of Jesus.
I invite you to bring your questions, to bring your doubts, to bring your wounds, to bring your fears to Christ. And let him reveal his truth to you. Pursue Jesus. He's accomplished all that was needed to be done. You are called to put your faith in him and to follow. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for accomplishing all that needed to be done for us. Thank you that we can just breathe easy today. We can actually rest because you've accomplished what needed done. We can do good works. We can work hard, not trying to earn anything, but simply because you've accepted us in Jesus. We can have true peace, knowing that though we may toil here and now, that things will be made right in the end. Not because of us, but because of you. We can take ourselves a little less serious. We can not try to find our value and worth in our status and in our jobs and in the things that we put on and the cars that we drive and the place that we live. We don't have to cower in fear of what might become of us and what might become of those that we love. We can enjoy the common graces of the good things you've given us because you've accomplished all that was needed to be done. 